0: Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buchholz, and this is episode 211, Novelizing True Crime, an interview with Jennifer Dornbush, coming to you on Thursday, September 10th, 2020. Guess what I am doing in a few days. On Sunday, September 13th, 2020, I would have been running the Copenhagen Half Marathon in Copenhagen, Denmark, which is right across the bridge from me. One train stop uh, from where I live right now is the Copenhagen Airport, and just a couple more train stops would have been the start of the race. So it would have been fun and easy, and it's a flat course, and I was really looking forward to it, and of course, it was canceled months ago. But I decided I had already done all this training, a lot of training. And so no matter what, I was running on that day. So as it turns out, I live on the side of Malma that uh, in Sweden, if you've forgotten, or if this is your first episode, I'm living in Sweden right now. And I live on the side of Malma that there's a lot of fields, like just a couple of blocks behind my house. In fact, um, where I live now used to be fields. (laughs) So I'm told. And so um, I found this little route that I'm going to run down in between these fields and then across over on this. There's running paths, bike riding paths everywhere in the city. It is awesome. So um, I'll be running on uh, safe running paths the entire time. 13.1 miles. (laughs) 13.1 miles. <laughs> so I'll be going up um, through this one little village and then up into another little village and turning around and coming back. And that'll be my 13.1 miles. And I'm running with my friend Rob and John's going to make us a big breakfast afterwards. And I'm super excited. The reason I'm mentioning this is twofold. One, yay, I'm doing this thing and I'm just excited about it. And two, I have always found running to be uh, having a lot of parallels with writing at least in my life and I've mentioned to you many times in the past look for something else that you do in your life that can be a great parallel for you for running because it'll help you to think of oh how do I get better in this area oh maybe this is how I could get better in writing how do I achieve things in this area oh maybe I can use that kind of idea or that attitude even to achieve more in my writing So the thing with me and running is I started it um, right before I turned, uh, somewhere around the time I turned 39, because I wanted to do something crazy and amazing before I turned 40. And um, and this just seemed ridiculous to me because I've never run a day in my life ever. (laughs) Like I run to the bus, maybe that's about it. So it turned out I actually really liked it. Like the first day, I did not. The first day I wanted to quit by it, I had already gotten uh, my husband and a friend of ours, we had already decided together, we were going to do this thing. Uh, Dwight was going to run a marathon. John and I were going to run a half marathon because we didn't know anybody who had ever run a marathon and was still smiling at the end. So we're like, we're going to run a half marathon. (laughs) That was literally our reasoning. Like If we're going to do this, we want to do something that's vaguely enjoyable. So we chose the length of the race that we wanted to do and then we just started working up to it. And so the first day I ran down the block. <laughs> I used the Couch to 5K program where it's like a minute of running, two minutes of walking kind of thing. And, uh, and I learned a lot of things about myself um, physically And psychologically and what it takes in your mind to push yourself to get your body to do things it hasn't done before. We ran a 5k and then we ran a 10k. And then we ran a half marathon. Yay. And then we just kept on running and we ran for my goodness probably close to 10 years. I can't think of exactly until John was in a motorcycle accident and then he really couldn't run anymore. Um, And so I ran a couple more races after that, which was harder to do because now I'm training by myself. I'm out by myself all the time. But then I decided that I kind of liked having that space, that space to be thinking about whatever I wanted to be thinking about. Mostly I would listen to podcasts or um, more recently I've been listening to more audiobooks. Sometimes I put on my music list that I specifically created several years ago for running that's got this great kind of upbeat and it's music that is about the same pace at which I like to run. <laughs> so, um, so it's been fun and I've gotten a lot of, I have no idea if I'm healthier, but I imagine that I would be less healthy <laughs> if I weren't doing it, because maybe I would just be sitting on the couch all the time. Okay. So part of it is, um, the, the things that we need to do to take care of our bodies, because we need our physical bodies to do all the things that are in our minds. And, um, and I worry about the number of writers that, um, become very overweight. I am sadly still very overweight. Um, writers who become obese, uh, where some of these weight problems and lack of exercise are leading to knee problems and hip problems and replacement surgeries. And then there's all the things like carpal tunnel sy- syndrome, um, where our wrists are are beginning to have too much uh, repetitive injury, um, necks and backs and all those things. So I was thinking, well, if I can just find some exercise that I like enough to keep on doing, that will help me to keep my body in good shape so that that my body can sit here or in this case like even now as i'm doing this podcast i'm standing so that i can try to be healthier <laughs> um so that i can do the Typing that it takes to write my books. And um, I'm still also sort of trying to uh, do more dictation so that, again, I can work on keeping my body as healthy as possible by not making it constantly do these tiny repetitive m- movements, which can lead to injury. Okay. All that having to do with the health side, but now the parallel side. So the thing is, is that I sign up for a race because I know if I don't sign up for a race, I will have lots of times of not running. And this is similar to the things that I see in my writing life. Like, I need some sort of deadline to push me towards finishing the book for one thing. Um, Because otherwise I can just say, okay, you know, like something happened. I got sick. We went on vacation. Something else happened. Had to take care of an unexpected crisis. Like all these things are the things that do happen in everyday life. But I can either work with them and around them and still keep more or less the deadline that I had anticipated or the one that I had set, you know, for myself, or I can keep pushing the deadline." Now, you know that I went through a period of burnout where I just could not do anything. I I literally couldn't think enough to do a single thing that had anything to do with work or writing or anything. Um, So I took a long time to heal from that. It It was bad, and it took me a long time to heal. And part of what I did was I just let myself to work when I felt like it and then stop working when I didn't feel like it and sometimes stop working before I didn't feel like it because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't pushing myself too hard and in a lot of ways I found that recovering from burnout was like recovering from a physical illness where um, you have no energy or strength at the bottom of it but then slowly you do a little bit more you do a little bit more you do some more walking you do a few exercises. And then slowly you work your back, yourself back into 100% health. And interestingly, I feel like that's exactly what's happened in my mind um, where the burnout got healed just slowly over time, a little bit more work, a little bit more work. And now I just have to be careful not to, as we would say in running, not to give myself an overuse injury or an overtraining injury. So you see how there are so many parallels between riding and running. And so the reason why I signed up for this Copenhagen race, I signed up in January, so nine months before the race, because I knew that if I had a specific goal at a set time, I would do what was needed to be ready for that goal. Now, when I don't do that for a book, and then during this period of burnout, I did not pressure myself to work on anything in particular. And then after I did start feeling like, oh, I want to work on this, I just worked on it when it felt good, when it felt healthy to do so. But then as I started getting healthier and healthier, I was like, okay, now we're going to start putting in some soft deadlines, like let's try to have this done by the end of the summer, things like that. But now, now, I feel like I am really good, healthy. I feel like I'm at 100%. And now I need to start looking at writing a little bit more closely, like half marathon training. It takes a long time. Now, I signed up for the half marathon nine months before. And so I was doing a lot of just, you know, um, several times a week running, not very long, um, maybe three miles, maybe four miles some days, but a lot of um, two and three mile runs. And um, and I was just trying to get myself back into having all of my muscles remember, oh yeah, this is how we do this. Have my lungs remember, oh yeah, this is how we do this. And then the idea was um, by the time I could get to the point where there was a training program, I don't know why, training programs are all 12 weeks. So I had to just do do on my own for the first few months until I could get to the point where a training program was um, ready to start me because it would be 12 weeks from the day of the half marathon. Now, you could do things like this in, in writing. Um, you could say that you're going to you know write every day or write three days a week or whatever until you get to the point where you... I don't know. Maybe it's because you had to wait until the end of the summer because your kids were out of school and you had to do, you know, a whole bunch of stuff with kids. I don't have kids, so I'm not really sure. I just remember things. My mom was always doing stuff with us. So, Um, or maybe there's some other reason why you have to wait to a certain period of time before you can add in a lot of um, really focused, intensive time to work on your book for a set amount of time in order to finish it. So, I want to encourage you to look at your writing like this or in comparison to something else that is a part of your life that's been working out fairly well for you. So it does take a long time to build a writing practice um, where your mind and body and spirit and everything is just ready to write at certain times, on certain days or whatever, um, that you get certain amounts done, that there are periods where this is the brainstorming period, this is the first draft period, this is the editing period, and then depending on whether or not you're traditionally publishing or self-publishing, this is the period where I'm sending out my work to my agent or querying agents or looking for editors who are taking unagented uh, submissions. You know, if you're doing any of those things or if you're self-publishing, this is the point where I'm hiring an editor to go through my book, do the final edits, uh, and then hiring a proofreader to do the final proofreading, always very, very important. where you're hiring a cover designer to do the cover, where you're deciding how you're going to have the interior designed, all these other things. So, so once you reach that why, you still have a lot of work to do. It's just that the work is slightly different depending on which path you're taking. And that's very, again, very similar to the way when I get to really close to the half marathon. Like this week, Okay, so last Sunday I ran 12 miles, and this upcoming Sunday I'll run 13.1 the full distance. But during the week, I run a different, like much lower set of miles. And this is all according to the coaching program. So I was running three to five miles three days a week in addition to the long Sunday runs. But this week, in order to, kind of give our bodies a little bit of a break, a little bit of a rest, so we can be as strong as possible. I'll only run uh, two miles, two miles, and three miles instead of three, three, and five. So again, what sorts of things in your riding life, like right before a launch, if there's any way that you can give yourself a little bit of a grace period so you can kind of like get some good sleep get your, your mind and your, your um, itinerary organized. If you're going to do a book launch, that will be a very intense period or it can be depending on what you choose to do. And so if you can give yourself a little bit of a rest period before you work into that big launch period, then you'll have more energy. You won't be quite as tired. Um, if you tend to get sick when you overdo things, you know, like colds, that sort of thing. And I used to be that way, but now I've been protecting myself so much that I haven't really gotten a cold in so long. I, I can't remember, but I'm sure that if I really did, you know, not sleep very much and not eat well and just work, 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 I probably would eventually catch a cold just like I used to always do it in the past. So these are all things that we can do to help protect ourselves, um, to be the healthiest and to get the greatest amount of work done. And to remember that this whole thing, it is a marathon, not a sprint. We can't just work, 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 work without any kind of break in between because we'll eventually have like an overtraining problem. We'll hurt either a part of our body or a part of our mind, we'll get burned out. uh, And we don't want that. (laughs) That's not good for long-term writing success. So I wanted to give you these um, thoughts to keep in your mind so that you can ask yourself, Uh, What can I compare writing to in my own life? And maybe you just want to keep on using my running example, either because you also um, do run or have run in the past or just because you think it's a good example. Um, And just keep in mind that in general, there's a lot of work that goes into a book, just like there's a lot of hours of running that goes into running a half marathon or certainly even more. If I was going to run a marathon, by the way, that's never going to (laughs) happen. And then look around and ask yourself, is there anything that I could use some help on? Anything that I think that this could go better, smoother, or faster, if I had some sort of extra help. So for instance, there's a couple of um, classes slash programs that I'm involved in. I've told you guys about them before. I absolutely adore Mark Dawson's classes, his ads for authors. And I took his self-publishing 101 class too, just because a couple of times I heard him say two or three things that I was like, I don't know those two or three things like I know the other 97%, but I don't know that 3%. And it was worth it to me to pay a few hundred dollars to learn a couple of extra things that I didn't know. Um, And definitely, I felt like it made a difference in the quality of product that I was putting out. And then Nick Stevenson's, Your First 10,000 Readers. Also, love that class starting at the beginning again and going through it again because um, I've been in this period, you know, of not getting much done, the burnout and everything. I haven't had a book out since uh, I think the last one that I published was August two, 2017. So, three years. And that's another thing, you got to give yourself grace, don't feel bad about the things that you can't control about the past, the past is in the past, there's nothing you can do to change it, what can you do now, you know, keep that sort of stuff in mind. So right now, what I can do is focus on being healthy and in a healthy way, write more books. So um, those are a couple of programs that I really, really like for myself. And I had a lot of friends and people that I met who was like, I started a book, but I just haven't been able to finish it. And even here in Malma, I know at least half a dozen people that's like, oh, I've started a book, but I just haven't been able to finish it. And that's why I created Finish Your Book Intensive Writing uh, Coaching Program. Uh, which I just finished the first eight-week class. And I'm so excited because one of the people had been working on her book on and off for 22 years, and she finished her book last week. Yay! And one of the other people, uh, he was working on his second book, uh, Nonfiction, and he wanted to just get um, two chapters done, uh, one chapter per month. He thought that that would be good for everything else that was going on in his life during this summer, and he completed five chapters in two months instead of two, so very exciting. Uh, there's just, it makes me so happy to help people and then to see them accomplish things. So I'm going to run that program again in October. And if you have some interest in just getting a little bit of extra help and how you can just get more done, get your work done in a smoother, um, like in a way that you're not, uh, beating yourself up in your head where you can just be calm and happy and joyful (laughs) as you're writing and writing more, Uh, you know, reach out to me. You can go to rightnowworkshop.com forward slash writing coach, and I will be updating that page all the time with more information. It currently, as of today, has the information from this last program that that just ended, but I'm going to do it again in October, and um, I'm super excited. I am really happy and looking for you know, that small group of people who you connect with me in the personality department. You like the idea of having a cheerleader, someone to encourage you, but also someone you can ask specific questions of and get specific answers. Um, We've helped people to get started on their newsletter and the freebie that people get when they sign up for their newsletter, so They can get more people on that list because that list is what will help you to actually grow the most amount of sales. Um, So we talk talked about a lot of things. And of course, mindset is a huge part of it. Mindset is a huge part of any long-term project. It's a huge part of running. It's a huge part of the writing life. And so, (laughs) so we spend some time on it, making sure that you are in a place where you believe in yourself. You believe in your story. You're excited about the work that you do. You have a reason why. Why are you writing this book? Who is it for? How is it going to impact? them how wonderful will it be when that happens so it's very exciting I love teaching it and um, and I'm really excited that the people in the first class really loved being in it and felt like they got a lot out of it so reach out to me if you're interested Um, it's not going to be for everybody which is fine because I want to keep it to a small enough class where everybody gets individual attention and then over time I'll also build some uh, work on your own pace sorts of courses you know that are video based where it's um, really not much interaction with me but I can because of that price it much much lower and make it more affordable for people so what are you going to do to finish your book this year whichever one you're working on this might be your 20th book Maybe you've been a little bit of, a little bit stuck because of all the craziness happening in the world. Uh, you might have had kids at home or um, you watch the news too much, or there's a lot of things to distract us from doing the things that used to be part of our normal lives. Um, or it could be that all this distraction and disruption has actually led you to a place where you're like, "You know what? I could be writing a book right now because." I'm not doing this and I'm not going here and I'm not going there. Uh, I'm actually getting a lot more writing done um, since the lockdown in March. So, um, you know, whatever it, it takes for you to get writing done at a pace that's good and healthy for you and makes you happy. Like, that's what I want for you. So I hope that you are thinking about it and working towards it. Let me know if you wanna talk to me about whether or not this program can help you. And it's a good segue into our interview today because Jennifer is talking about novelizing true crime. So she knew about this case from a long time ago, and then she kept hearing little bits and pieces more about it as things would come up. And then she watched the entire trial, and uh, ended up deciding, like, this this is such a good story as well, that she decided to write it as a novel, mostly using the case, but then changing things where she wanted. And she explains to us, like, how she chose the case and... um kind of some of the reasons of why she chose to make changes in um, what happened, how things ended, that sort of thing. It's really, really interesting, and if you're at all interested in writing crime and or true crime, I think you're really going to love this particular interview. Also, Jennifer is a great teacher, and she's a forensics expert who speaks to writers groups and um, uh, she consults with television and film companies to make sure that the work that they're doing is accurate it's she's just so interesting so without further ado let's give you jennifer today's guest is jennifer grazer dornbush jennifer is a screenwriter author international speaker and forensic specialist as she says i grew up around death There were body parts in her fridge, and she investigated her first fatality at age eight. She knows how to hide the bodies, and some say she has an overdeveloped sense of gallows humor. She gained a degree at the Forensic Science Academy in Los Angeles in forensic training and earned a unique kinship with LA's top CSIs, fingerprint specialists, DNA scientists, and detectives. Out of this experience, she authored the top-selling authoritative book, Forensic Speak, used by TV and film writers, novelists, crime investigators, and law enforcement. Jennifer is a multi-produced and published author and is currently penning a true crime memoir while navigating the Hollywood waters to get her Coroner's Daughter series on the screen. She is a member of the WGA, Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, and FBI Citizens Academy alumni. Welcome, Jennifer. Jennifer. Thank you, Miss
1: Kitty. So good to be back.
0: It's good to have you here again. You and I are always talking about writing and our projects and things that you're researching, like kind of all the time. So it's nice <laughs> to like be able to share it with the rest of our friends yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The now, writing and reading community. Oh, that's right. That's right. Now, the last time that you were on, I believe that what we were talking about was writing um, not romantic suspense, just suspense. Uh, yeah, suspense it yeah. was the coroner's mm-hmm. daughter series.
1: Yep, yeah? yep, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mystery and yep,
0: mystery. Yeah, yeah. I was,
1: I was like, oh, which, those?
0: which of those terms do you use? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but first of all, we need to go back to this bio. First fatality at age eight. Please do tell. Tell
1: us <laughs> the story here. Okay, I will tell you the truncated version. So my father was a medical examiner in Northern Michigan for three counties, Ooh. and we're, we're both Northern Michiganer, ganders, Michiganders. Right. Michiganders. <laughs> <laughs> so he worked, uh, and he was the only medical examiner for those three counties for about 25 years, and the office was in our house. And so everything, death investigation related, forensics came home. It was just kind of what we ate and breathed every day. And so as part of it, it was just the fabric of our lives. And one day, there was an airplane crash in our little town. We have a small mm-hmm. air airstrip there and a twin engine plane crashed and three people were killed. This was like on a Saturday night. And so my dad and of course the investigators went out and investigated the scene, et cetera. It was dark. It was foggy. It was rainy. They put up lights. They did the best they could, but, and then they had to, you know, close the scene. But the next morning was Sunday morning and it was a beautiful, bright, spring day sunny and after church we were all in church and we come out of church and my dad says you know i want to just swing by the airfield again now that it's daylight and sunny and take a second look and because we have a better uh, lighting situation (laughs) so the family toodles on over after church and here my sister and i are in our sunday dresses and our sunday school shoes and those little socks with the lace you know the the lace (laughs) yes And my, and my dad's like, come on girls, you know, come on with me. So we hop out of the car into this muddy field. I'm sure my mom was like, great. Uh, (laughs) Honestly, probably her thought was more about the clothes than actually what we were going to see. But (laughs) we hopped out and we had no idea what we were doing or looking for. We were just along for the ride, but we basically flanked him as he went through the field up and down, just looking. And he just told us, If you see anything unusual that doesn't look like it's a part of nature, you know, that's not a stick or a stone or a flower or something, just let me know. And sure enough, we both spotted something on the ground and we pointed to it and my dad stopped and he picked it up and he put it in the palm of his hand and it wasn't very big, maybe the size of a quarter. And he said, oh, that's great girls. And we're like, did, what is it? Did we find something and he said, yes, you did. That's a piece of skull, brain skull. And we had no, you know, we're six and eight. We had no idea. And he goes on to explain that, that it's a bone and how the bone, what the bone is made of and how the bone protects the brain like a helmet. And then he put, puts in his little bag and we keep moving on. So, <laughs> wow. And you guys so were like, like okay, case. daddy? Yeah. I, I don't remember that we had any, we just, it was science. It was just yeah. another lesson everything was a lesson
0: so wow yeah okay that's that's I honestly I was reading (laughs) your bio going oh she's gonna tell us some cute little thing about how you know her dad helped her find out why her cat died
1: but that was not what I got Mm -mm. Uh, we also found a piece of brain matter so wow yeah oh no yeah yeah yeah
0: I I can only imagine (laughs) that it must look as bad as it looks like when the really good art department people you know
1: i it was really just sort of you know it wasn't bloody it was just sort of gray and gelatinous yeah because brain
0: doesn't really have that much blood in it right
1: yeah so it wasn't really like a piece of putty i don't know (laughs) wow (laughs) Okay, so good. The I on that 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 note. yeah <laughs> i hope- hope nobody's eating while they're listening to this, <laughs>
0: yeah, um, so sorry, it's too late for me to give you a warning.
1: stop <laughs> eating now.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And honestly, um, like in all seriousness, if anybody is listening with um, children that they don't want any more of this kind of conversation, seriously, you should probably just listen to this later, because we are going to be talking about true, true crime today, and mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure how much Jennifer's going to tell us, but she is a forensic spe- specialist, so we will probably talk about forensics things, so um, yes. just, there's, there's your warning, I hope everybody... Yes.
1: Can, and uh, na- yeah. Yes. And the nature of the true crime is a bit brutal as well. So yeah. Partly yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So now that we've got the warning, um, please feel free to say whatever you think is, um, you know, uh, tells the story, <laughs> Jennifer. So I <laughs> okay. don't want you to have to truncate too much. Because what we're talking about is um, basically writing true crime, but not in the
1: traditional way. So why don't I let you explain? Yeah, so the um the my newest book that just was just released and I'll put the little up here for those who are watching is called yes. Hole in the Woods and it is is a thriller based on true crime. And so I the, the short log line of this is that I basically was following this case for 25 years until it went to trial. I was able to sit in on the trial and during the trial I realized this would make an amazing novel i didn't want to tell it as a true crime story because um, well one, i'm a novelist I I, I I love nonfiction, but I write fiction, and I love writing fiction, I love um, crafting story, and i there was there are so many interesting pieces to this true crime that I thought would be great for a protagonist to explore and for us to be following this protagonist, so that's um that's sort of the basis of how the book actually came about.
0: Yeah. Um, and do I remember correctly or um, yeah, whether or not I had this right, I wasn't sure if I had the dates, right. Um, this, this crime happened to somebody who actually lived in the area that you lived and was a similar age to you. Is that right?
1: Yes. Right. So exactly. Yep. So my father was the medical examiner on the, the true life case of Shannon Siders that this book is based on. And she was, brutally raped and murdered the summer of 1989. And while I didn't know Shannon, we did live in the same small community. We didn't go to the same schools or really hang around the same crowd, but um, we were were of the same peer group and age. And I just remember it was such a shocking experience for for this to happen in our small community because it just isn't every day that young girls go missing and then are found later raped and murdered. So it it really shocked the whole community. And then, of course, as the case grew cold, it became more and more of this cloud that hung over the community for a long, long time. Hmm. And so um, some of the things
0: that you wrote about in the book, you probably saw personally, like the billboards and advertising signs saying, Things about like, do you know where Sharon Siders is? That's Yeah,
1: of- yeah, exactly. So, you know, a case, there's a, lot, there's a lot of reasons why the case went cold. There's a lot of reasons why cases go cold, period. And most of the reasons have to do, not so much that there isn't enough evidence, but that there isn't enough manpower or money um, and resources to go in to the case. So for a good year, the police and the detectives um, worked very hard on trying to solve this case, but then there just wasn't enough evidence, yeah. uh, physical evidence or even testimony. They had their suspects. They they knew, I think they, I honestly think that they knew from almost the beginning who did it, but there was not enough evidence to actually make an arrest. So, um I forgot where I was going with this. (laughs) Well, and that does
0: remind me that that's kind of the way you had your protagonist um, seeing it when she gets there uh, 30 30 years later. In
1: the book, it's 30, yeah. 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 And and she starts
0: thinking, I think everybody's been thinking for the last 30
1: years, it's so-and-so. It's them, yeah. 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 So here's the the spoiler. This is not a whodunit. (laughs) Yeah. We'll find out rather quickly. You know, pretty soon into the book, who done it. It's just you're right. So, Riley St. James is a detective from Detroit who's a newly minted cold case detective. She's called in to help set new eyes on this case and solve this case. And so, yes, yeah, she's looking at this and thinking uh, you know, kind of going back through all the evidence and all of the witness testimony. And now she's got a, she's a fish out of water plop herself into this community that's been dealing with this and actually living with the killers. Yeah. for 30 years and now try to find out it's um basically about breaking a code of silence so at the end of the day it has almost nothing to do with physical evidence which is true of the real case as well it all had to do with breaking a code of silence um and there and uh, I don't want to say I won't say the ending yeah. or how it how it was actually happened but that's what she she needs to do she's very has to be very skilled at talking to people and digging, digging, digging. So. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, um, so you knew lots of things about this case from the very beginning and then all along, then you mm-hmm. went and watched the trial. At what point were you thinking, um, I'm actually going to do something with it. I mean, is that why
1: you watched the trial you had already yeah. decided? I had, I had decided, well, I had, I had thought very strongly this, I've been tra- you know, tracing it forever. Uh, through things I knew from my dad, although my dad didn't reveal everything because it was an open case. So he couldn't even tell his family, like everything he knew about it. Um, And in 2011, somebody local, a local documentarian did a documentary on the case. And so that kind of brought it to light again. And I was like, Oh, I learned a few more things, you know, now it's now I'm older. I'm more in tune to this too. And and then, yes, yeah, so walking... So when they finally did arrest these two suspects, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to be at that trial. I think this would make an amazing story. Yeah. Wow. So, okay.
0: So let's say somebody's thinking, oh, that sounds like something that I want to do. What are some of the things that you... Um, had to think through yourself, uh, any permissions that you had to get? Like um, there's a father who who lives in this town. Um, Turns out your dad was the medical examiner. Like it seems Mm -hmm. to me there's a whole bunch of people that maybe you need to, if not get permission exactly, some sort of kind of tacit agreement that these people are willing to talk to you and that they don't mind you retelling the story, not exactly as it happened and with totally different names. I don't know. If, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't read a lot of true crime, so I don't know if this is a, a normal thing, novelizing a true crime, but this is the first time I've ever heard of it. So like, how, how do people feel when you say, I want to write about this, but I'm going to change everybody's
1: name and change some of the circumstances? Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the beauty of writing fiction, you don't really have to get permissions, quite honestly. I knew a lot of things from my dad. So that was, you know, just not an issue. (laughs) But um, I really, the other thing is like, because I sat in on the entire trial, which was about three weeks, all that's public record. So I don't need anybody's permission to use what's public record. I did, I just, I didn't necessarily There was, they assigned a cold case team to this case in 2012 and it was five detectives. So in reality, you had five detectives working on this case solid for two years before they made an arrest. Wow. No, it's the, this was the first, I'll just back up and say, this is really incredible because Michigan, and, and this is something a lot of people don't know, that most police Or law enforcement agencies do not have cold case investigators or cold case teams only like 18% of all of our in the US all of our law enforcement agencies actually have a cold case, you know, designated task force. Well, in 2011 Michigan State Police designated a task force. Ah. for cold cases. And they went through all of these cold cases to dis- of, of Michigan's entire cold case history, which I think went back to like the late 1800s. And they decided which one they were going to start with first. And Shannon Siders was the one they started with first. Oh, wow. Yes. So now you have manpower, you have state resources behind this, because this was not cheap. I want to say we're talking at least a million or more was put yeah. into this into solving this um yeah just the case. um salary for five people for two years is yeah. 200,000 <laughs> right right exactly so all this to say um it was a big deal <laughs> it was yeah. a big deal but i i i was like i don't really want to talk to all of these detectives um i i got enough of all that from just sitting in on the trial what i'm what, So also you can't have five protagonists, right? You have to say, okay, I only need one protagonist. Yeah. And so that was another reason why I decided to fictionalize it. It's like, I really, we just want to follow the journey of one woman here. Yeah. (laughs) So the only person that I felt I really needed to get permission from was Bob Sider, Shannon's father. And so I, he knew who I was just because of my dad, but I did approach him and have some conversations with him, and drafted up the little agreement with him, and have stayed in touch with him over the years as I've been writing it, and now as it's been released, and we've, um, you know, we've developed a, a friendship. And so he, his when when I finished the first draft of the novel, he was the first person to read it. Wow! And I wanted to make sure. I had his blessing and if there were anything he wanted changed or tweaked, even though it was fictional, it, yeah. some parts were close and th- he gave me a few little notes, but nothing too, you know, major. Yeah. Um, but he's been very supportive of it. But other than that, it's, I don't, you don't really need, you know, you, if you're fictionalizing something, it's more of just, if you want someone's blessing, I think. Yeah. Um, because I, there's some things I, I forensically, I tried to follow the case. I picked the most, um, I call them turning points. There were certain forensic turning points that really turned the case to help solve it. So Mm -hmm. those are the things I picked for my plot line. But a lot of the time I would like combine characters or completely make up characters, um, or sometimes they're loosely based. Um, I, don't really know the personality of the true killers. I only ever saw them in court. I didn't really want to talk to them. Honestly, I really didn't want to open that can of worms or honestly give them, give them that, um, satisfaction, satisfaction or infamy. Yeah. So I, I'm like, ah, You know, this is an area. This is why we're fiction writers. Yeah, that's right. We 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 can imagine evil. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. And you know what? If if either of them does read it, they'll realize they got a whole lot better deal than the way you ended it in the book. (laughs) Yep.
1: No kidding. That is true. And that's the other reason I wanted to end it differently, because fiction uh, fiction has to sometimes sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes fiction needs to be more dramatic than truth yeah and in this case i wanted there to be a more dramatic intensified ending yeah so and i won't spoil it but (laughs) right (laughs) yeah okay so um so
0: somebody's thinking yeah i want to do this so they they know the bones the skeleton sounds a little weird to say it that way, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, we always talk about the bones of a story, but now it sounds weird when we're talking about somebody. Um, but anyway, so, um, so they know the bones, the skeleton of a story. Um, You said I chose um, these pieces of it to use in my story and lots of other things I made up. What sorts of um, questions did you ask yourself? And this is going to advice for listeners. What sorts of questions do you ask yourself when you're trying to pick through? Because I would say that after 30 years, there was an awful lot of information altogether to pick through.
1: There was, and I did rely on a lot of news stories both online and of course this happened before there was online. So there's a lot of paper in newspaper stories. Yeah. I relied on things that the victim's father told me things I heard in court. Um, things. My dad told me things that the documentary in 2011 told me. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, that's interesting. Cause I, my, I think my mind works so quickly sorting that, that I, it's sometimes I'm not even conscious of what that thought process is, but I usually just start with a basic structure. Like save the cat is one of the ones I love to use. So I do remember sitting down and it might've even been during trial. I was starting to think through what a structure might be and who, who is my protagonist and and you know when you're writing crime there's a very much dual structure because there's the plot of the crime that you have to solve and then there's the journey of your your protagonist yes so those were i do remember sitting down to very specifically plot those out distinctly and those are a little different but yet sometimes they connect so again i think you know one time kitty i found this article it was a more recent article about like the 10 somebody had written like the 10 clues or pieces of evidence that were used to solve the Shannon Siders case. and I remember reading that article and thinking, huh, that would actually, that pretty much follows structure right there. And I remember pulling a lot, and I knew a lot about those pieces and how they had come together because I had sat in, in the trial. Yeah. Even though in trial, they're not presenting it like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it felt like somebody else kind of did the work for me. And then I was like, ooh, that's actually a really great structure to follow. And I did yeah. make a couple of them up. Um, but I remember I had to plot first what's the actual, how does the case actually get solved? And then how does Riley St. James and her, all of her baggage and story come in. What's her journey in solving this and her obstacles? And she starts out as a person who is very wounded and fish out of water and very green and doesn't understand these small town ways. And she ends up healed. She ends up a person who's gone through. this basically because this case triggers a lot of PTSD for her and she ends up having to work through that and ends up healed and ends up embracing some of the people of this town and some of the parts of this life this small town life that have healed her yeah so I had to kind of think then that's a whole nother thing I had to think through what are the steps to that right
0: And then some of the other characters too, you, um, showed, um, sometimes just a little bit, sometimes a little bit more of, uh, like little journeys that they were on as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I knew that I wanted, one thing I knew from the beginning is that I wanted to tell this with multiple, multiple points of view. So you do hear the victim. She has her own story. You hear from the killers, you hear from some of the people who were involved in the crime i won't say how they were involved but yeah yeah <laughs> they, they know things because this is you know breaking a code of silence yeah so you hear from the de- now the detective who's now currently working in that town who was a peer he went to school with these guys yeah you get to hear his point of view and yeah
0: that was really interesting i was like oh. And now you're the sheriff, whoa, or sheriff or- Whatever, detective, yeah, Yeah, detective, I think.
1: Police detective. Just police officer,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so so then you use story structure to figure out what your story was going to be. Um, And you said to yourself, I'm going to change the ending a little bit because I want it to be- Possibly, um, probably the main thing is that you wanted it to be more dramatic, but did you also just feel like you just wanted to punish them more? (laughs) Of
1: course. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was like, this is great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, Bob Siders told me after he read it, I like your ending better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay.
0: uh... Let me think. There was another question I had, but, um can't remember what it was, but so how did being a um, daughter of the medical examiner for that case, did that have anything to do with anything really, or is it just gave you access to maybe a touch more
1: information that change anything? I think the latter for sure, because I knew about it from, from the beginning and I I do even though at the time I was in college, so I was away from home. I do remember my dad talking about it and my family talking about it, and it again it it's a very sort of egregious thing to happen in a small community where you know if you have a murder or two a year, that's
0: that would be a lot. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) So I do think it was something that just haunted my what's the word it haunted our community and it it haunted me because you're thinking well gosh that could have been me like yeah. wrong place wrong time yeah i have to say yeah the the when
0: uh how do i say this in the first couple of chapters i thought holy cow that could totally be something that i would have done for the first like 30 years of my life i'm just too yeah. Trusting, just never really think anybody would ever really hurt me. Yeah. That happens to other people in really bad situations, not people who you kind of (laughs) know.
1: Yeah. And in the real life case, what? It was a bunch of, you know, friends hanging out. And when they split up to take off in their cars together to go cruising around the county, these guys were friends. They were, sorry, the, the killers were cousins to a good friend of hers. So you're not going to think twice about jumping in a car with a f- your co- your friend's cousin. Yeah, you know. Yeah, like, who wouldn't do that, <laughs> right? You know? So. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: Is there anything that um that you remember from writing this and or any other you know? true crime stuff that you might have, you know, coming up in, in your, I I don't know if, if this was sort of a one-off for you or if it made you think, you know what, I'm going to do some more of these. And then I need to go look for a story now (laughs) because it's, this one happened to be something that was a part of your life. But if you had to go look for a story, like what sorts of things would you say you would be looking for to create? Yeah. I'm just looking for advice for listeners,
1: what do
0: you look for if you were?
1: That's a great question because yeah, when I started, this was like, wow, this isn't what I normally write. Even the style of it is very different than what I normally write. Um, It's funny. I don't know if I will keep doing this or not. Maybe, maybe I will. I'm not going to say never because I really enjoyed it. I'm always trolling for ideas So, and they come to me in various ways. Some of them come through hometown newspapers. Sometimes people send me things, articles. Sometimes I'm just scanning the internet like we all do and something will pop up. Yeah. I like to go quite a bit off the beaten path when I'm searching for things. Um, I, being from Michigan, as you are as well, I love that setting. And there's so there's another story that I've been thinking about for years. It's a, it's a true, it's a real case that happened up in Goodhart. Maybe you even heard about the Goodheart murders, but it was like back in the fifties. So yeah. I'm just always looking for kind of those interesting hometowny, very off the beaten path. Yeah. Uh, not big city stuff. That's, I'm not about big city murders. Um, right. I don't know. That's just, go where your interest feeds you. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: And because this one was a novelization, if you do another novelization, then my guess is you won't have to worry about, well, this case doesn't really have enough uh, information available right. yet. It won't matter because you can kind of, make stuff up because you already have a whole headful of knowledge about <laughs> crime and forensics and stuff is
1: that right I love that yeah and i think like for instance with these good heart murders there's been books written about them even i think maybe a sh- a not a- I better not i am not sure if there was a fictionalized version but they never solved it so it's kind of fun because as a novelist then you get the opportunity to solve it if you want it's so true. You get, and like this book, I get the opportunity to write the ending I want. Yeah. Yeah. I feel justified or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, you know, that's the thing about this genre is that we are looking for justification. We're looking for justice, right? Yeah. We're looking for justice. This is a story that spoke to me because it's not just about justice, but also intense mercy. There's an intense... Piece of forgiveness and mercy that flows through this story and I won't say anything more but it's not just about find the killer catch the killer or whatever blah 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 there's there's a lot more to it and I like those kinds of stories where it's not just so black and white but yeah there's a lot of gray to it
0: you had a lot of characters struggling with whether or not they should do something or say something now. And should they have done something differently then and still not forgiving themselves from things that they did or didn't do 30 years ago, which I thought was really interesting and just made the story a lot deeper and richer than just a whodunit kind of story.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the things that I loved about the real case too. I think I wanted to pull that theme out because there were so many people who had heard things, seen things, been told things in that 25 years, but for whatever reason, and there were many reasons, and some of them I understand did not stand up and say anything. Yeah. Um and how do you live with that? Yeah. How what does that do to a person? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what I thought was also interesting about this case.
0: Yeah, and that's something that, I mean, having grown up and lived in a small town, actually 13 miles outside of the nearest small town, (laughs) Yeah, um, I feel like I could really, um, like I'm not going to say any details here on the air, but um, there were some things where I was like really, really scared of what would happen if I said something about this Mm -hmm. or that person because of who they were related to and the power that person had. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think about um, being one of 10 million total strangers in Phoenix, Arizona, the only time I've ever been on the jury for a murder trial. And there were people who were trying to get out of jury duty because they're like, I do not want the, and it was gang gang people. They're Mm -hmm. like, I do not want these gang members to know my name or where I live or you know, come after me if we find that they're guilty. And that was another thing that like I don't even know you and you couldn't possibly know me, way different from a small town. And it still made you really scared that if you said that person's guilty, like would something happen to you sometime in the future. (laughs)
1: Right. Exactly. And that fear is something that drove a lot of the people who knew things. And you have to know too that when this happened, the the people who knew things were teenagers. Yeah, they were between fourteen and nineteen. So now add that layer to things. Ooh, you know. Yeah, and they're not necessarily upstanding teenagers. They're drinking. They're doing drugs. They're doing illegal things. Are they? It's. I love that this is a very complicated story. Yeah, you know, of justice. So.
0: And I think that's an excellent point. Is that um, when you're writing a story like this, you've really got to. Think through all the ramifications of, like you said, you know, age. What kind of group of people are they? As far as you know, um, people who are doing something they want to hide, whether Mm -hmm. it's underage drinking or drugs or whatever. Um, What sorts of relationships? What sorts of um, interrelationships across uh, even county lines? And I mean, there's there's so many things that could affect the way that your characters think and feel and therefore act. And I think it's great to remind writers that like there's a lot and the more that you can add those nuances, the richer the story is going to be.
1: Yeah. I love that because I, that's so true. I love that because now that you think about it, because again, when I wrote it, it was a while ago, but when I wrote it too, I remember thinking through all the different characters I wanted to include and their viewpoints. And you have to really think through yeah. What were they think? What do they know? What don't they know? Who are they going to piss off if they do this or who, you know, what are their alliances? Um, what are their, I, I don't know. It was exhausting. Yeah. It, honestly, I would write one chapter and be exhausted because <laughs> I lived in that character's whole world for like yeah. three hours. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, your world is exhausting. Right. I, say, I can eat a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're like, and to think like an like a killer, to think like a person who's holding a secret. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Which was interesting because I, I think it's safe to say, I mean, I think that you were um, the first person to say it. I was trying to avoid saying <laughs> how, whether there is more than one killer, but so.
1: Yes. Um, there are two.
0: <laughs> there we go. So now that you've said it,
1: <laughs> there are two. And you know, um, that's public knowledge anyways, for, for the real case.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. But that's another thing is that um, the further you get into the book, the more you see these two people and their relationship to each other, and in this case, fictionalized version of their relationship to each other, mm-hmm. and you realize that there's power struggles and fears and threats, even possibly, or at least that's,
1: that's how yeah. I was feeling when I was reading it,
0: um, even even between those two people
1: exactly oh no there it totally is and a lot of that I got from watching them in court and honestly some of their family you know I sat there for three weeks it's not a big courtroom I mean this town that that the trial was in was teeny tiny but every day it was packed and you get to know who's there and I would have people from their side come up and talk to me like his aunt like the aunt of the brothers who the killers right talk to me she like a lot and like share things with me. And wow. Yeah. Like family secrets or whatever. Or I don't know <laughs> if they're so secret, but <laughs> right. And you just kind of get a feel by watching who comes, who doesn't come, uh, you know, are any, of, are they married? Do they have kids? Which both of them had married and had kids in wow. this time. So yeah, it's, it, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't Speak highly enough for sort of that firsthand experiential knowledge, things that you can't get online or in a book. Yeah, just by sitting there and observing somebody and how they move and
0: and um, I I think it's very sad uh, how long it can take things like this to get to trial, regardless of the thirty years. Like even even if somebody gets arrested today, how long it takes. But from a writer's perspective, um, if you're looking for a story and this is the, the kind of thing that you're, you're looking at, I mean, you could be looking at news stories and finding out when something really catches you and you're like, okay, as soon as that has a child date, I'm going to go because it's p- quite possibly going to be months from the time that you hear about the story.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, for sure.
0: Now. You have another aspect of this area of your life that we may or may not have talked about on the last interview, but I know it's a passion and it gets you very excited. We can definitely uh, end on a more positive note, (laughs) but tell us what
1: is the Cold Case Foundation and what is your relationship with them? Yes, I would love to. So the Cold Case Foundation is a nonprofit organization that helps any law enforcement agency. Uh, any person or any victim's family with their cold case. All you have to do is go on and apply. i They are an all-volunteer team of most of them are retired and they're doing this now. They're using their years of wisdom and expertise to give back in this way. There are probably 30 or 40 experts that they have on their team. I like wow. to call them the Avengers of crime fighting <laughs> nice. because they're like... I mean, there's arson specialists in DNA and forensic scientists and former FBI behavioral profilists. And I mean, it goes on and on the, the level of expertise. So what they do is when a case comes in, they're able to draw from all these experts and then put that case in front of them and, and give it fresh eyes. And it's all free It's because this is nonprofit. So it's not costing that law enforcement agency money in which of course, most of them don't have a cold case task force or they don't have the amount of, you know, the type of resources and, and finances and budget for it. So they started in 2014. I think they have over 200 cases on their docket right now. And they're, they're continually expanding. And I was able to part, I found out about them about a year ago and contacted them because I really believe in, in giving back. And I wanted to find an organization that I could partner with long-term forever because yes, okay, we write crime, right? We're crime novelists, whatever, thriller, suspense. We are writing about the fictional heroes, but I think it's important to support the real heroes who are doing this work. And once I learned more about them and started to have conversations with them, I'm like, these people are the real deal. They're amazing. And so I've partnered with them. I'm, I'm donating a portion of the proceeds from Hole in the Woods to their organization and that will just be ongoing. That's so awesome. We sell, the more they get. Yay. And, yay. And then down the road, they also have an amazing the, you know, they're they're they have an amazing victim prevention program that they're starting. Now, of course, a big portion of what they do is solving crimes in the past, but they're also really about let's let's try to lower crime in the future. And a big part of that is training just people like us. How can we become more aware so that we can lower our risk of becoming victims of a crime? So they're working on um, developing this victim prevention program, and then they're going to have ambassadors like me. I'm going to be one of their first ambassadors who can help go out and train the public in various ways nice. on these techniques of victim prevention.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. That sounds super exciting. Yeah, it's good. It's good. They're hoping to roll it out in December. Um, you know, they're limited staff and limited time at the moment because their main focus is just fight crime. So yeah. you know, yeah. or I should say solve crime, but they are going to, they're working on a series of trainings that will be able to become then duplicatable. So like people like me uh, can step in. Yeah. I can learn the training program and then they can send me off to, to train. Nice. Wow. Okay. So
0: buy a copy of Hole in the Woods and and help the foundation. There's probably other things that you can do to donate or somehow support them.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's just you can just plain old donate. (laughs) They have a donate button. They are always looking. If you are a law enforcement or forensic or something in that field, they are always looking to add more experts to their team. So you can donate your time and become a part of their team nice awesome yay
0: all right well i can't end an interview about crime writing without mentioning your book forensic speak which i'm holding up if you're watching the youtube video (laughs) and if if you're not watching the video i have to say it's such a cool uh it's such a cool cover the uh the title forensic speak looks like it's on police tape wrapped around the cover which is just so
1: cool looking yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now tell us a little bit about this book because regardless of whether somebody is writing true crime or uh, novelizations of true crime or just out and out novels, no matter what kind of crime you're writing, the, the way that you have to present the information still has to be accurate, right? Even good. if it's, it's... a Good idea. Yeah. yeah so good tell idea. Us, tell us how this book
1: helps with that. Yeah. So uh, this book was created after I went through the Forensic Science Academy And basically was my ticket to graduate. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote it just as a as a project and then was encouraged to publish it so I did and it's it's what I call a forensic forensic academy in a book. So it goes through all the different I guess modalities of forensic science there's over 300 terms it explains them quickly uh let's see if I can find one that's not too gory. Okay, nuclear DNA. So it'll tell you there's a whole section on DNA. Whoa. Oh, yeah. I can't get it to my little camera. There's a <laughs> whole section on DNA as so like nuclear DNA. What is it? Where do I see it? How do I use it? And it just and then mitochondrial DNA. It just goes on and on. So it's all these different terms. And you can just use it as a great resource guide. And the goal is that it helps you speak forensics authentically.
0: Yeah. So that if you have um, someone in your story who is an investigator or a policeman or a, um, what's the person who's in the lab? Well, that would be either the medical examiner or the coroner's office, right?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: You you don't want them using the wrong term because it sounded like the right term, but wasn't actually the right term, right? right?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And there's a whole section on toxicology and and weapons and you know guns and courtroom and yeah so any any part along any place along the way of your story you'll you'll be able to speak you know authentically about what's happening in the nice. case yeah awesome that's what it is
0: well i love this book i i i don't have much use for it in my romantic comedies <laughs> But I have to say, everything <clears throat> to do with poisoning—I don't know what it is about poisoning. But your book, and um, there's another one called *Book of Poisons*. Oh yeah, um, gosh, I love that
1: book. I know. But yeah. I
0: actually did. I found something that I wanted to happen to one of my superheroes, oh. and and I found that there was a certain kind of poison. If he's poisoned a certain way, this will be an effect. Huh. So yeah, you never know when you're going to you be never able know. to. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing all this. It's not very often we get to talk to somebody in your field. So hopefully there are people listening who are like, yes, this is what I wanted to learn today. Yay. Yay. So where yes. can people find out more about you, what you do when you, go, when you do go back to public speaking or, or maybe you're doing stuff online? I don't know. But where can people find you and your books and, and more about you?
1: Yeah, thank you. So please join the community at jenniferdornbush.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there, all my social media, the books, there's lots of forensic resources. But yeah, get plugged in to the community. And if you have questions, I'm happy to answer questions. I get them periodically and they're a lot of fun awesome. to research. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. So I, I, um, yeah, come join, come join us. And uh And you also have a YouTube channel. Yeah. And so YouTube channel called Forensic Fridays, which has a lot of stuff on it, including right now a lot of things about the real life case of Shannon Siders. Ah. So we go, I go to the actual places where things happened in the real case. I'm also reading there's a section where I'm reading the first 10 chapters of the book. So if you want a preview, yes, I read part of it that way by listening to you read it. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, I'm planning to beef up Forensic Friday. That's next on my uh, marketing agenda. We're going to really try to work on that channel. I have lots of ideas and fun things coming. Yeah. More interview-based. I really want to tap into all of the forensic resources that I have and really talk to the people I know who are in the field. Right. So I'm really excited. Oh, yeah. So that'll be (laughs) 2021. Here we come. Yay. Yeah more Forensic Fridays. Awesome. Thank you so much for
0: sharing all this and good luck. Hole in the woods, everybody just came out in August. So grab your ebook or print copy anytime at whatever is your favorite store to to buy and uh, know that you will be helping somebody else's uh, very sad, unsolved case uh, get solved by helping the Cold Case Foundation to have a little bit of extra resources. So thank you for that
1: yes thank you so much kitty
0: thanks for being on the show
1: everybody keep writing keep reading (laughs) that's right (laughs) thanks jennifer all right bye thank you